All right, Matt, welcome. Episode number 48 here. Uh, Count up on a year annual, uh, you know, uh, celebration. We'll have to do something special for that episode. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, although I wonder yeah. if it's the one that you're going to be gone, actually. I haven't, I haven't done the math, but it seems like you'll be, I think you sent me a date that you're going to be gone two or yeah. three, three or four weeks from now. So, yeah, I think it's like three Double weeks check. from now. Yeah, yeah. My special field trip day with my youngest son at school for the whole day that day. Don't want to miss that. So, um, Anyway, uh, macro market. Yeah, usually just for people tuning in now who haven't tuned in before, format is this is being live streamed on uh, Twitter Spaces and on YouTube Live on our Good Soil Investment YouTube channel at the same time. And uh, we talk about macro format as we talk about macro market stuff, and then we talk about Tesla, Elon stuff, and some other stocks that we that we follow. If there's any news on that, and then we just do Q and A for the last half of it usually. So. Uh, hope everyone's doing all right. Hope everyone had a good weekend. It was exciting Sunday night. I was like seeing the futures up like one and a half percent. I was like, all right, this is gonna be a great, maybe we have, have turned the corner and, and come back. And then sure enough, it fades away, you know, yesterday somewhat. And then this morning, I guess, uh, some CPI number in Europe, you know, came out that was higher than expected. So, you know, put a damper on the markets a bit, uh, that, that seems to be the, the narrative, uh, we're being told for the macro market um reversal slight reversal here but who knows what the real reason is just could be the normal ebbs and flows of markets going up and down maybe today's just a consolidation day a bit of last week's gains and maybe we're back going heading back higher later in the week we'll see or we could just have had a short bear market last week and continue a downtrend this week what are your thoughts man do you have any any hunch of what's going on yeah i mean the the biggest theme i think is, is obviously just you know equity markets have been absolutely hammered you know year to date um it the, to me that what we've seen in the last week or so it kind of reminds me of the the rally we had in in late march and into into april um yeah. you know we we got you know slaughtered the first two and a half months of the year and then you know march really turned it around there was this you know kind of incredible rally um right after that fomc meeting in in march um so you know, it seems like as the as the downtrend has continued, it's maybe not surprising that we see a couple, uh, you know, modest rallies along the way, just to kind of offset the the kind of face ripping, um, you know, downturns that we've seen. But um, yeah, to me, I, I, the volatility doesn't necessarily surprise me. In, and I think we probably could go, you know, higher or lower from here. But it, I think a lot of it's just going to depend on macro. I mean, the, the biggest thing on my horizon, I think, is the you know, what, what is the May preliminary uh, or the May CPI number look like, which we'll find out in a couple of weeks here. So I think when mm -hmm. that news comes in, if it's if it's really good, I could see that sparking a, a pretty considerable rally. And, and if it's, you know, not so good like the last one, then uh, I, I could see, you know, kind of continuing rate fears uh, rating in, in equity markets kind of continuing on their on their downturn. So we'll yeah. see. The third option is we could trade sideways for the whole summer. Yep. You know, that's certainly possible. And in that case, if you're an options seller, you're going to do quite well. Um, yeah. But it's so, so up, down or sideways. Yeah. You guys heard it here first. <laughs> you guys are, it could be anything. We have no idea. We're very uncertain about the macro market. It's not easy. <laughs> the macro market, uh, you know, people who try to attach narratives to the macro market. It's easy to tell a story of what caused the macro market to go up or down. But it's very difficult to predict with a story of what the macro market is going to do next. Very difficult. People who can do that should be very wealthy by now, but hardly. I don't think any, I don't think anyone can do that really. Yeah, um, that's. Why we, I think we, we tried to have a little bit of you know humility around this, where you know we 
in the past anyways have had some some short positions to kind of get us close to delta neutral on macro hedging and uh you know that's worked successfully for a little while but we also want to be kind of uh there's more asymmetry on the upside so we know we want to in the long term be uh more very long exposed. yeah so yeah. you know whether you you're not going to time the bottom perfectly is kind of my thought but you know with with some pricing the, the way it has been you know it, it seems like there's potentially some opportunities if you've got the long enough time horizon. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is, uh, today, I guess Biden, uh, called for a meeting with Jerome Powell and, um, you know, sort of an unusual for him to do that. Uh, and the timing is, uh, conspicuous to me with the, you know, midterm elections around the corner. And, uh, you know, I've voiced my opinion on that, and I kind of think it's because he wants Powell to help stabilize the markets and prevent it from crashing another 20% fast or something in the summer. And if all of a sudden we're down 30 or 40% on the year to date when the midterm elections come, you know, I think the Democrats are going to have a hard time despite whatever inflation, you know, inflation is not going to be solved by November no matter what, you know. So it's going to be like inflation is running hot and the markets are down 40%. That's worse then inflation's running hot, but markets are only down 10%, you know? So which are the which is the worst thing, you know? And I think uh, that's my thought. I know other people have a different read that Biden is talking to him genuinely about doing what he has to need to do and raise rates faster to curb inflation. Um, I think that's what Biden says, of course, because he's a politician, but his number one priority above everything else is to get reelected as any politician's number one priority is second priority, which is what's best for American people and the economy long-term, that's a distant second. So what are your thoughts, Matt? What do you think is going on with this meeting today with Powell and, and Biden? Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I very similar viewpoint to, to you, actually. I mean, as I was listening mm -hmm. to you know, somebody, I forget who it was, but somebody put out a, a comment like, oh no, like uh, Biden absolutely respects uh, or wants to preserve the Fed's ability to act independently or something like that. And I'm like, well, all right. Well, wh why even request a meeting then? You know, it just seems so unusual. So it, to me, the most likely explanation is really that, um, you know, he he does kind of request some you know, sort of toned down language or, uh, you know, yeah. something to kind of give a boost to, to equity markets. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like he wants some breathing room to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Republicans have been saying all along that Biden's terrible for the market and you know, here we are, like Biden two years in, the markets are going to be down from where he took over basically pretty soon. And uh, so he's trying to, I think, prevent that kind of card coming out during midterm elections of, uh, well, we'll see. That's my read. Um, I wonder if there'll be any notes. I don't, I'm looking at articles. I don't see what time, if anyone in the comments section, which I haven't been reading carefully enough, knows what time they're meeting. Maybe it's sort of behind closed doors and they're not going to talk about it. I'm not sure, but it'd be interesting I, if there's a time. And they I talk about I it at all. I thought 2.30, but I, I, I could be making that up. I, I saw something okay. was 2.30, but could could be the wrong yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, you got to think that's going to be some official. Door real quick. Sorry, man. Sure. Somebody's sure. here. Yeah, no worries. Matt's got six little kids running around his house, so uh, bear with him. <laughs> yeah, my son just, like, busted in here all of it. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, uh, so going on too. So I'm really yeah. looking forward to moving into uh, the, the new office eventually, but we'll see. It's been going on forever. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see what the uh, official statement is they put out about this meeting. I mean, they already let out that they're public. I wonder how many times they actually meet behind closed doors without anyone, the public even knowing. I wonder if that happens or if they can't get away with that and they just every time they're going to meet 
unexpectedly or unplanned, they have to just publicize it some way. Do you think that they ever meet, you know, on a bat phone and talk on a bat phone without the public knowing? Do you think like Biden calls up Powell and is like, calm down on the interest rates, man? Do you think he ever does something like that? Or do you think that's not really I mean, possible? I, I'd like I'd like to believe that, you know, that sort of stuff doesn't happen. And, you know, the, the different branches of the, the government kind of respect the autonomy of, of each other. But I just don't think that's how the real world works. You know, I'm sure there are some a lot of back channel, you know, interventions of some sort or another, you know, now, now whether, yeah. whether those are, you know, like conspiracy theory level, you know, like breaches of, you know, fiduciary duty or not fiduciary duty, but, you know, the responsibilities that each uh, different branch of government has. I'm not yeah. necessarily convinced that's the case, but, you know, there's there's some amount of soft power that I think, you know, has some sway or at least has the potential to have some sway. If the president of the United States asks you to do something, you know, I don't, I don't care who you are. I, I think you're going to take, you know, that request seriously. Now, whether or not yeah. it will actually change policy, that's that's definitely debatable. But, um, yeah. you know, it, it has the potential to have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you heard when I talked to Dave on his channel. I think uh, I mentioned that I had met um, some uh, lady who claimed to be part of like uh, Trump's uh, executive you know, committee or, you know, not an official, uh, like a staff member, but not an official like high position or whatever, but she was close on the Trump, um, you know, circle apparently. And, uh, she had a friend with her who seemed to corroborate the story too. And it was just an off chance conversation. It's not like she pitched me some idea. I just kind of wiggled my way into discussing this with her and asking her about it. And it appeared, she seemed to imply or state, state that, that even after uh, Elon had resigned from the um, publicly from those councils that that Trump was putting together, that Trump and Elon stayed in touch regularly, and Trump would call Elon all the time, as he and Trump called many people all the time, just to ask for input and feedback on things. Um, so maybe you know maybe the presidents do call various um, you know CEOs or. Jerome Powell off the record for advice or feedback on things or giving to give input. I'm not sure, but I'm not sure if that's true. I think it sort of was true, but we'll see. Yeah, no, Dave, Dave voiced some uh, heavy skepticism that, that that was a, you know, kind of legitimate, um, you know, uh, representation from, from that, from that woman. Um, I'm not sure, you know, to me, it, it could, could, could go either way, but I mean, yeah. I mean, look at look at Elon's tweet last just like earlier. You saw a tweet like anytime he admits that anytime anyone mentions the name of, you know, who's he who's not to be named, people start foaming <laughs> at the mouth. And I think Elon recognized that early on is like, I better publicly get out of my, my face. attached. And I think Trump probably understood that and was OK with it. Yeah. And they just had behind the scenes discussions. That's my thought. That's my read on the situation. That's, that's my thought, too. But I mean, you know, Elon even said that he he voted for Biden. So you know, even if. Yeah you know, Elon and Trump did have that sort of relationship that that woman was talking about. Clearly, yeah. you know, it wasn't the sort of nefarious thing where, you know, Elon was secretly supporting Trump. I mean, he just yeah. stated that he voted for Biden. So, yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I have a hard time, you know, trying to think that there's anything super nefarious going on. But at the same time, yeah. you see, like, what's going on with the GM and like the, you know, Elon's been commenting on how like the Democrats are in the pocket of the unions. And that that certainly seems to be the case with these kind of continued snubbery that that is going, you know, SpaceX yeah. and Tesla's way. Yeah, that's the biggest mistake. I th we'll stop talking about politics mm -hmm. in a second, but the biggest mistake the Democrats have made is not getting Elon on board with them in a, in a better way, especially when the Biden administration took over. That was the biggest mistake. Now e there's like the Elon party or the Elon influence. And 
I put out a tweet like a week or so again, calculating an estimate of how many voters will be swayed from voting Democrat to Republican this midterm election, for example. And it's very, it's not marginal. It's a, I think it's a very influential amount that is going to change uh, election outcomes, this midterm election. And I think you'll see political strategists and, and, you know, pollsters will start recognizing this and you'll see political strategists advising the uh, Democrats or the Republicans like, Hey, you got to court Elon. You can't demonize him or it's at this point in his, in his career and in his influ- state of influence. You can't, yeah. You have to, you can't just demonize him because he's a billionaire, you know. So well, it's it's kind of funny because I remember like five years ago to ten years ago, even I mean there were kind of endless attacks from from Fox News on Tesla in general, and what a waste of, you know, there was a government loan guarantee program or something that they had, and how like you know the EV tax credits were just a waste of money, and like there was a Tesla death watch essentially from the Republican side of, of the aisle yeah. for the longest time, and it, it was like these, yeah. Those attacks just drove me crazy. And now it's, they it's did. funny because the, the Democrats are doing the same now thing. Now it's the reverse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah. Romney pushed down Tesla during some of those dates way back. I remember that. And I was like, what the heck? What's this Romney guy talking about? I remember thinking that. Like, yeah. yeah. He, he like grouped them in with some others that have failed, you know, loans that were failed or whatever. Yeah. So um, that was a big thing. Yeah. 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 I see Larry Goldberg's in the comment section saying that the Biden Powell meeting is, is set for one I'm assuming that's Eastern time. So that's in about 45 minutes. So we should find out maybe in two hours or so, some kind of official statement or some kind of maybe three hours. I don't know, but I would think we'll find out some kind of official statement or something I wouldn't be surprised if whatever comes from this meeting moves the markets. I'm not saying it will. I don't think the market's expecting anything to move the markets from this meeting, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if something comes out that does move the markets, good or bad, more likely good in my opinion. But uh, we'll, we'll have to all watch this closely. Uh, yeah. well, it's It's been crazy because even like the tiniest bits of, of news have seemed to move markets like down 3% and then you know, like up 4%. Like it's the volatility yeah. is just, I mean, the, the, the whole equities market right now just seems like a, like a coiled spring and it, like it could bust down and it could bust up, but it's, it's almost like it's waiting for something to kind of tell it where to go. And the, yeah. the volatility has been something to behold. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Tesla now. That's the stop talk. We had an incredible bull versus bear debate with Drew Dixon. Uh, end of last week, we published it like right after we had the debate, basically on Friday afternoon. And it was very popular. It's as, as viral as any of our, our recorded interviews have gone. I think it's got over 15,000 views in the first two days or something. So it's it's actually, and it's 90 minutes long. So that's a lot of viewing time for our YouTube channel, which has like 7,000 subscribers. That's pretty good. And uh, I think it was a really well done uh, interview. Drew has a lot of great points. He's very sophisticated, knows what he's talking about. If anyone's on here, hasn't listened to it yet, highly recommended. You know, if you go on a walk or whatever, or in a car, it's great 90 minutes. You can listen. Anyone listening to me, I always recommend one and a half speed. I'm kind of a slow talker, but Matt and uh, Drew let them speak for themselves. But uh, I think listening to those interviews, two X <laughs> or one and a half minutes. That's what yeah, I Yeah, you get it done much faster and, it, and you can absorb it. Yeah. If, if you're paying attention. So what were your thoughts about the interview, Matt? Did it change anything on your, on, did it change anything materially that you can, uh, you can talk about here on your view? Um, so I, even before the interview, I would say the, the one kind of data point I've been watching to see if there is any change in it would be lead times. Cause you know, 
if the economy really is weakening, there is a potential that, you know, demand, which has not been a problem for the last several years, could become a problem. Just, you know, selling $60,000 cars in the middle of a recession. It's conceivable, I think, that that could become a problem. Um, so I, that, he kind of hinted at that a little bit. Um, and, you know, that's, in my mind, uh, a concern, but it, it wasn't necessarily a new concern. Uh, the one that I hadn't really given a whole lot of credit to potentially was um, the importance of having many different models. So he was talking about how, you know, the market is kind of segmented into all these different brands and, you know, different, you know, vehicle types. And so Tesla right now has, you know, the Model S, the Model X, which are, you know, high-end, you know, luxury sedan and, and SUV. And then, you know, the, the crossover with the Model Y and the um, smaller form Model 3. So those are kind of, they've got like one entrant in each category and there's very little kind of uh, differentiation possible within that, within those options. Um, so they've been incredibly successful with those vehicles to date, obviously. I mean, there's, I, I don't think anyone can say that they have not been successful, but it did, his comments did get me thinking, okay, when you're talking about selling 10 million units, when you're talking about selling 20 million units, at least in the scenario where autonomy is not solved, um, I think it, there's a, there's a pretty reasonable case to be made there that they may need some, some differentiation and, you know, more vehicles. So you're probably not going to sell like. 10 million Model Ys and 5 million Model 3s, for example, like that's just very hard to conceive that, you know, those two vehicles could, you know, sell in, in those quantities. So um, that was that was one thing that um, maybe got me thinking that it may be important for Tesla to kind of continue developing like the Tesla minivan that Elon has talked about or like the full conversion van, a um, couple other different form factors maybe may be helpful as well. So that was, I think, the, the biggest point I took away that I hadn't really thought through in detail, but I'm curious, what about you? Is there anything that kind of changed your opinions or um, got you thinking in a different way? Um, I would say there is no new information that I hadn't heard before, but I would say his stance on writing down your what, what you think will make you change your mind uh, was was important and something I, I, you know, in my mind, I keep these things, but instead I decided to write it down. I even wrote it back in an email to him last night in a postmortem yeah. on his postmortem, what will change my mind? Because I think it's important to write down, you know, what will change my mind about Tesla instead of just thinking in my head or talking about it, which I can easily make it a moving goalpost. Then if I actually like yeah. write it down, you know, you can put it on a piece of paper and tape it up on your desk or whatever, or write it down an email that you can go back to, um, I thought that was a good point to make. Like if you are in love with a stock, write down what would make you change your mind about that stock to not be so in love with it. And so um, I wrote down, I said, uh, if I personally, not if I hear of test drives in the media, <laughs> as you all know, that's a lot of bunk. Usually anything in the media or a car and driver, or even consumer reports these days has it in for Tesla for, you know, a number of potential reasons. But, um, you know, if I personally test drive uh, another EV, that has a comparable, at least a comparable experience for driving to a Tesla, but also software. And that's the hard part, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, so if I have another EV that I can personally test drive, that's comparable in driving and software, and that includes the autopilot capabilities and highways and the potential for full self-driving capabilities, you know, that includes that as well, not just the touchscreen and how easy it is to use and manipulate with my phone or, you know, connection to my phone, but includes that. And... If I think that company can mass produce that EV, it's not just some prototype, you know, they're producing at a big loss and they can't mass produce it, you know, because I think someone might even be able to like it just it's hard enough to do that alone. But even if a company can figure that out with a prototype, 
you know, very expensive prototype. That's a whole nother ball game than be, of, for, versus being able to mass produce that type of experience in an EV, you know, in an efficient way. So I have to also believe that that manufacturer can mass produce it uh, in somewhat of an efficient way with some positive gross margins within a couple of years from that time I test drive it. And I think that the only possible player, the most likely player to potentially reach that is the Chinese EV player. Um, and I'll, that's why we keep a close eye on Xpeng, Neo, Li Automotive, and others. BYD, to some extent, I don't know about, you know, they, they're great at batteries, but I'm not sure they have the technology side locked down or the software side. But um, some of these other newer EV players in China that have gotten off the ground and seem to be producing tons of cars, those are the ones I keep a close eye on. And if one of those started exporting anything meaningfully, you know, and I could test drive it, you know, more than like a couple thousand cars, if they're exporting like tens of thousands of cars, you know, a quarter, and then I would certainly catch my attention. I'd want to test drive it. And if I felt like it was very comparable, then I'd have to really dig deep on potentially shutting down some of my Tesla, not shutting down, but, you know, taking off some of my yeah. Tesla position. Yeah. I mean, investing sense. in general at a, at a very high level is about, you know, um, finding the best kind of risk reward combination out there. And so yeah. I think in that scenario that you outlined, it's not that you wouldn't think Tesla has a bright future, but you may have other uh, stocks in your portfolio, which would yeah. then look like they've got better risk reward profiles. And so you may just yeah. kind of rebalance for, for those reasons, which I think is, you know, a very natural thing to do. I mean, one of the other things we, we touched on towards the end of the interview was just how there's, you know, a good chunk of the, the Tesla community, I think, which is kind of in this mentality of just like hodl until 2030 or later and, you know, sell at 10,000, whenever it is that Tesla reaches like 10,000 a share or something like that. And yeah, um, yeah. Like I kind of get that inclination and I, I, I do kind of identify it with it because uh, I think it's kind of like a, a somewhat likely uh, scenario given a long enough time frame. But I do think along the way, it's important to kind of check in and be like, OK, are things progressing the way that I thought they would in order to get to that future, you know, $10,000 share price that I have in my mind? I think if you're yeah. not doing those checks along the way, you're you're opening the door for your, you to get blindsided and, you know, if the company really does have a, a big misstep of some sort. So, yeah, um, I think it's important not to be kind of uh, missionary about uh, about any name in your portfolio as much as you may love the company like we clearly do with Tesla. Yeah. Yeah. I think of it as like try your hardest not try my hardest not to think in a binary way, you know, yeah. think probabilistically, always take in new information to reevaluate my reevaluate my probabilities of out scenario outcomes personally and just keep tabs on that at all times. Don't think Tesla's going to be the biggest company in the world, no matter what, which I do think is likely. I still think it's highly probable, yeah. but it's not a hundred percent, you know, and, and I'm always taking in new information to see something changes. It's possible. Google deep mind AI does something incredible before anyone else. And Kathy Wood, you know, is on the ball with the, you know, uh, consumption going up, you know, with the, with the GDP going up 30 to 50% a year because of some crazy break, deep mind AI breakthrough. And now Google is going to be the biggest company in the world and, you know, for a long time before Tesla can get there or something, you know, that's possible, but yeah. I still think Tesla is going to be highly successful. Um, and we're always just looking for ways to shoot down our argument. So it was great chatting with Drew and we just, we talked to him, it was 90 minutes, but we could have gone for 900 minutes. There's lots of things we could have <laughs> talked about. We, we missed. So. Yeah. yeah, there were, I mean, there were a whole lot areas that we didn't really even get into. And, and one of the common comments I saw was that neither side really gave their the price targets, you know, or their, their valuations, yeah. which is, I kind of regret it in, in retrospect, because we did 
kind of bill it as a valuation debate, but I think we ended up having an evaluation debate in a lot of the emails leading up to it instead of on, on camera. Yeah. So I think in a tweet that in a little bit more detail. Yeah. I think drew in a tweet reply, follow up to someone said like he has a hundred dollar price, <laughs> maybe going into it. I don't know. That's something like that. Something around that hundred billion market cap valuation or something. I, I, I Which, could be wrong, but I thought that already mentioned. Yeah. Uh, but he also, one, I mean, one of the things just piecing together, he said, was he thought a, a 50 PE kind of made sense. Um, mm -hmm. So he didn't specify whether he thought that'd be trailing or forward. I mean, to me, it seems more likely that you'd have a forward PE of 50 than a trailing. Um, yeah. But it, I mean, assuming, you know, he did have a, a 50, you know, PE, I don't know what the trailing earnings is right now, somewhere close to like nine bucks, I would, I would guess something yeah. like that. Uh, so that'd be, yeah. you know, 450 stock price somewhere in that neighborhood. So yeah. I, I don't think he thinks it should be trading at a hundred, but I think his forward view could be that, um, margins get compressed going forward. I, my, my take is he does not believe margins are sustainable. So, so yeah, maybe, that's what I think he, yeah. he said margins are, that's one of the things that would change his mind. If margins were sustaining as volumes increased or maybe margins improved, that could change his mind too. So it's good that he wrote down or he, he, he listed some points that he would reevaluate his uh, position of being a bear on it. And uh, yeah, it'll be great to talk with him again in maybe six months or so and see what has changed or what has not changed in his viewpoint in hours. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, next thing is, um, you know, Matt, you mentioned something on, on one of, well, first, I guess Shanghai's reopening, uh, is a big deal. Um, it's, it's, I guess officially Shanghai's like really reopening starting tomorrow or, or probably yeah, today first. already in China. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so they're putting in all these incentives, government incentives, try to like spur growth again. And I guess Shanghai Tesla Shanghai is going to be a hundred percent soon or supposed to be It's 70% already, but what are your thoughts on that? Have you read much about that or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, there was that um, visit that one of the Wall Street analysts had in Fremont earlier this week. I forget who it was. Um, maybe it was Wedbush or something. But yeah, and um, Mizuho, I think, just had something out about that, too. Yeah. So, so they put a note together in, in the, what they were saying is one of the constraints right now, aside from just like the, the Shanghai shutdown, which is, you know, lifting is, is the ability to get supply in. So um, it's not only about how fast Shanghai can ramp, but it's also how fast can the other uh, suppliers get in there. So, um, you know, they I think that the number that they they put out there was they were expecting 250 to 260,000 units, um, you know, this quarter, which is really, I, I think, right in the wheelhouse of, of what you and I and, and most of the kind of well-informed bulls have been expecting for a while now. So didn't necessarily change the story too much, but I, I think it's maybe just important to keep in mind that uh, it's not only about Shanghai kind of lifting restrictions there's also the the need for the other suppliers throughout the you know yeah supply chain to, to get up and running get those parts actually delivered yeah and that's a big deal also for downstream supply inventory uh you know problems with the whole u.s market and and causes of inflation i think or inflationary shocks so it's good that shanghai and, and china is kind of getting back to full speed quick now after two months of shutdown because the longer they're kind of they were in that mode, I feel like the longer it could cause ripple effects in the world economy, especially the U.S. and and put more stress on our economy in terms of inflation and such. So I think that's really a good good sign for macro markets, too, in general, not just Tesla. Um, and I saw you put a tweet out about the Model 3 uh, leases expiring coming up. That's an interesting point you bring up. And I, we've talked about it or touched on it before. You did some more analysis. You think it could be up to like $200 million of incremental uh, margins this quarter. Is that right? 
Yeah, so that's my kind of back of the envelope napkin math. And, and maybe for those who didn't see the thread at a high level, um, three years ago this quarter, so Q2 of 2019, Tesla introduced the Model 3 lease program. Uh, and the really unique thing about it was they did not allow uh, for the user, for the lessees to have the option to buy back the, the vehicle at the end of the lease, uh, at least not at a predetermined price. I've, I've heard some reports that Tesla is letting them buy it out now, but presumably that would be, you know, at a at current market values, um, not at what would be the residual values that Tesla would have booked at the time that, that the lease went into effect. So, so maybe just a, a Quick summary of the accounting behind this: the when uh, Tesla leases these vehicles, so Tesla owns the vehicles themselves, and they are essentially letting uh, the lessee uh, make use of the vehicle. So Tesla, um, when it enters into a lease, puts the book value of the uh, of the vehicle on their balance sheet, um, and then kind of depreciates that over time to um, a, a set residual value. I was doing some poking around and it looks like most uh, vehicles or most um, leasing companies out there uh, would use like a 50% book value um, at the time the lease is entered into. So in other words, let's say back in 2019, Tesla sold these vehicles just to make the math easy at $50,000. Uh, well, then they would have a assumed residual value of 50% of that. So $25,000, uh, which would just they would depreciate those vehicles up to up to that or down to that level, essentially. So now, um, if that accounting has run through for three years, then Tesla has a bunch of vehicles sitting on its book for $25,000. But if you look at the actual market prices for 2019 Model 3s, it's more like $55,000, $60,000. Yeah. Especially one sold by Tesla, because Tesla attaches full self-driving to these. So my point was that they could be sitting on a gain of, you know, Twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars, somewhere in that neighborhood, per vehicle. Um, that you know, this would be a new source of margin because the leasing program is just kind of kind of getting to that end of end of uh, three-year period right now. Uh, and so, uh, you know, my estimate was it could be you know, around two hundred million dollars this quarter. But then, this is keep in mind this was during the Model Three ramp, so this is like the er- the smallest amount of margin that we could see from this you know lease vehicles coming off lease. Uh, and it would presumably increase from here, kind of mirroring the the exponential ramp of Model 3 three years ago. So um, just another kind of uh, tailwind. I mean, $200 million is, is a lot, but it's, I mean, it's kind of is like the plus or minus error of credits. So it's not, you know, it's roughly 20 cents per share in, in earnings. Um, and there's a good pop of pro- possibility that my numbers were wrong in some way. So maybe it's only, you know, 100 million or something like that. Uh, but I think the, the point is, it's just another kind of, tailwind that uh, I think a lot of analysts are not contemplating. So if I'm right about this, we'll see a pretty big bump in services gross margin this quarter. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very likely. Uh, and it's going to get even more so each quarter co- going forward, right? I mean, it's there's going to be more as they ramped up their Model 3s, there's going to be a higher if this turns out to be true, you know, next quarter could be, you know, you just have to look at the how many Model 3s they sold three years prior, right? And you just kind of can do the math and see how, how much it could grow, right? Yeah, I mean, the the, the kind of crazy thing is, I think it was um, like 77,000 Model 3s were sold um, last, or in Q3 of 2019, which seems like such a small number. It's, it's kind of funny going back yeah. through and being like, yeah, I remember being impressed by that number three years ago. And now it's like, wow, that's that's cute, you know, 77,000. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, thinking about like three years from now when they're selling, you know, between Model 3 and Model Y and a portion of those are, are leased and, uh, you know, looking at, I'm sure the, the the accounting policies probably have not changed too drastically because, you know, 
accountants tend to want to be conservative. You know, they don't want to have the potential for a markdown. That's a lot worse than, you know, having a gain three years from now. So there's there's potential that, you know, Tesla's whole balance sheet is kind of, or at least that this uh, uh, vehicle's uh, sold under operating lease uh, line item under the assets is, is significantly undervalued. Um, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And what percentage of the Model 3s have been leased historically? Is it pretty constant or was it, was no, it more earlier on or more? Do you know? It was. Um, so I think they, they didn't break it out in Q2 of 19. If my memory is right, in Q3 they did. And it was something like 9%. I think it it spiked as high as maybe 15 or, or, or low teens. Uh, but then most recently, I think it's come back down closer to 7 or 8. So uh, I mean, it was never a huge percentage, but just yeah. on even if, even if you assume towards the low end, you assume it's only seven percent or so, but it's yeah, you know, ramping so much over time. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge uh, potential um, tailwind that that's just going to grow. And then, I mean, yeah. the reason they did this in the first place was so they could own their own robo taxi fleet. Yeah. Um, so if they do somehow solve that, then the margin potential is going to be even higher because they've got all yeah. these vehicles on their books for, you know, $20,000, $25,000 or so. Yeah. Um, and they it's almost like a, it's almost like another phantom asset that uh, Wall Street analysts have no yeah. way to really model. Right. I mean, you have the, the mm -hmm. phantom asset we you've talked about. We've talked about of the credits that no one seems yeah. to model or be able to value. This is almost another phantom asset of like how much extra they're going to make on these leases that they're expiring, I guess. Right. And Wall Street yeah. analysts aren't even accounting for it in their numbers. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, nobody, like, I've never seen any Wall Street analysts talk about this, but um, yeah, I mean, Tesla did something super unique three years ago of saying, we're not going to give you the option to buy this. We're going to, yeah. you know, take that risk and that opportunity ourselves. And lo and behold, that was hundred percent the right, right move. But I, I remember them kind of getting ridiculed at the time, but yeah, to your yeah. point, it, it is like a phantom asset because this is yeah. one of the things that drives me crazy about accounting is that it like in this instance, for example, it doesn't give you the right answer. It doesn't give you the actual value of the asset. Yeah. It just has some weird restriction on it. So so these all the people looking at Tesla's financials don't realize that the number on their balance sheet is too low, uh, yeah. just like it is with the with the regulatory credits, because they don't even go on the balance sheet, which is That's so right. stupid in my mind. Yeah. Um, so it's just like some of the accounting rules are so dumb, like Bitcoin, for example, Bitcoin on the yeah. balance sheet can only go down in value. It can never go up. I was like, yeah, that's dumb. So like, ridiculous. That's yeah. not a helpful accounting policy. So there's <laughs> a, a lot of these accounting policies just drive me nuts because like you need to yeah. like have spent a lot of time looking at this stuff like I have to, to really uncover these little nuggets and it should be more accessible to everybody. So it's, it's yeah. frustrating. Absolutely. Yeah. It reminds me of way back, I think in like 2013 or 2014 when the model s was first kind of growing uh there was all this thought about oh tesla's will never resell the batteries are going to run out and then elon stepped in to to personally guarantee not off the company but he said he's going to personally guarantee from his wealth that they can buy back that you could sell back your model s or trade it back in or it'll be worth at least like 60 percent of its value after three years or something you know, so similar to what the top luxury cars were, were getting in value after three years of ownership. So he was personally guaranteeing. And lo and behold, you know, years later, three or four years later, it was well over 60% in value. You could sell your Model 3 or 4 at the time. You know, same thing with the with, uh, the Model S. Same thing the Model 3s. People didn't, un you know, people just assumed the worst or they're afraid like, oh, the Model 3, what if something happens going to be worth a lot less or whatever. But there's Tesla saying, hey, we're going to make sure we'll let you lease it, but we're going to take away your ability to buy it from us later.
because we're so confident that we can do really well with the resale values later. So, yeah, definitely. And, and a little side tangent on that. I had a, a conversation with uh, Florian Minderop, who who was the founder of Mr. Green, that that Dutch EV leasing company. They, yeah. So they own a fleet of 4,000 Teslas. They're like, they're wow. incredibly interesting. 4,000. That's 4, huge. And they're trying a to week's production like in uh, Fremont or something. Yeah. Yeah. But so they've been doing the, they've been doing leases of only Tesla's, um, in the Netherlands and, and a couple other places within Germany for a while now. Um, and so their, their financing partners follow the same kind of lease accounting where, you know, they will only, um, give them financing essentially following the depreciation models for ice vehicles. So they've got all these like vehicles coming off of lease that are on their balance sheet for like a really low amount of, of money. Cause that's what they had to do to follow the accounting. And then they're just sticking them into a second lease, which like their financing partners didn't think they'd be able to do. And like the accounting, you know, is, is like we were saying, undervaluing those assets on their balance sheet. And so they're getting an entire second lease at pretty much the same pricing out of these vehicles. And then they're attaching full self-driving to it as well uh, with as many customers as they can um, in the hopes of, of developing a robo-taxi fleet. So like, you know, they're another company who's kind of taking advantage of this and they're, they're seeing um, you know, kind of the financial benefits of, of the longevity of these assets of, of these vehicles yeah. that last just frankly way longer than their, you know, internal combustion engine counterparts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Some, yeah. Just another interesting tidbit from that conversation. Cause I know a lot of people didn't watch it, but, um, they've been essentially subsidizing full self-driving a little bit, you know, they're selling it for mm -hmm. between 30 and 80 euros per month. Mm -hmm. Um, but with that, they're seeing a, a take rate of 35%, which was kind of surprising to me. Um, yeah, wow. you know, in in Europe in particular, which doesn't have beta, which is high take rate. Yeah, that we have here. Yeah, it's crazy. And they said just last month, 50% actually. What? So wow, he actually he thinks that, you know, take rates actually been increasing based on what they've been seeing because they're not really doing anything different, but they're noticing take rates going up. That's a fascinating data point to show. Yeah, tweet that uh, interview out if you can after our chat. I just I, I didn't see it. I want to listen to it for sure. Yeah, I, I tweeted that last week. I'll uh, I'll, I'll tweet Maybe it. I missed here. it. Yeah, I feel like if I don't look at my Twitter in like 12 hours, I, I miss some tweets because uh, it only like caches the last several hours or something. I don't know. But uh, there's like apps you can get to keep it all stored. I just don't I just try to keep my whoever I follow to a minimum amount where I can continue to. But anyway, I missed it. So let's move on quickly to Twitter yeah. and Elon and then we'll go to Q&A. So just briefly, Elon tweeted a kind of a, a meme about letting a Twitter bird out of uh, a cage or bird cage and it's flying away my take i had two takes i think like it could be that you know he's opening up unlocking twitter and the free speech capabilities and unlocking lots of value at twitter he's going to unleash the potential of twitter when he takes it over or it could mean like i thought like if you love something you let it fly away and it might it come it, let's see if it comes back to you you know and um, he loves Twitter, clearly, I think. He loves the potential, at least, of Twitter. And it could be like he's letting the offer fly away, like he's giving up and he's sticking to his guns on a lower value that they're not taking at the moment. And he's going to say no deal. And he's kind of letting them decide if they're going to come back to him and agree to it or not. So I, I wasn't sure. Those are the two takes I had. Did you, did you think one way or the other? Or, or what do I, you think? I tended to think more that he wanted to let Twitter fly as in like get it out of the cage that you know Parag and company had, had put it in so mm -hmm. I think he, he still wants to go forward with it and and he kind of views himself as the one that's you know opening the cage door and yeah. letting it fly so I hope so um, yeah. I could be wrong but that's that's the way it struck me yeah yeah I hope so yeah there's uh unusual whales just tweeted this morning 
that some glo global cybersecurity cumber, CHEQ is the stock ticker symbol. I forget the company name. Discover is a global cybersecurity firm that its own analysis on Twitter and 11.71% of all Twitter visits were driven by bots, fake users, or spam bots or botnets, you know, clip farms, automation tools, and other forms of fake fraudulent non-human traffic. So instead of 5%, it's, it's pretty much analysis as it's, you know, 120% higher or 140% higher than what Twitter is uh, saying at 5%. So at 11.71%, that's pretty, pretty material. Um, I wonder if that metric can be used in terms of trying to negotiate a, like in a court to yeah. negotiate a better price. Yeah, I mean, um, it's not the order of magnitude like Elon was talking about, where you know he thought it could be as high as fifty percent or even more. Um, yeah, which, yeah. I, to be honest, that seemed high to me. Uh, just it seemed high, not impossible, but high. Not yeah, impossible, seemed... but you know, I would like if I was ballparking, I would say like twenty percent or so. That's so, what I would say. You know, this eleven point seven percent figure, like that's like to that's me, possible. both parties could probably move forward with that, right? Maybe, maybe you take a little haircut to the price and. You know, both parties yeah. can agree not to let like the litigation fly. I think there's a serious risk that there's like pretty heavy litigation coming out of the way that this has been handled, probably on, yeah. on both sides. Um, yeah. So I, I think that they'd probably want to avoid that. And so maybe it, you could cite something like this, 11.7% and be like, all right, well, let's each give a little and and just consummate yeah. the deal and get it done. I, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it gets done this summer and doesn't drag on for, you know, a year or whatnot. Um, yeah. All right, let's go to Q&A. We've talked enough. Uh, we, let's try to get 20 minutes of Q&A in here, and uh, Alec will post up the questions. First from uh, Tesla Tiderium on Twitter. Elon has been tweeting his positions on divisive issues and his preferred candidates. Will his test, Will this affect Tesla's brand or demand? Um, first, I would say he's not necessarily tweeting about preferred candidates. I think he's saying he's going to vote Republican in general this midterm election, not, he's not endorsing specific Republican candidates uh, to my knowledge. I think he's just saying Democrat, the leaders of the democratic party have been kind of villainizing him. And, and so he's more tempted to just go on the Republican side, this midterm election. Um, and I, I'm glad Elon is being more transparent because you get to such a level of influence. It's impossible to just dance around politics and not uh, be involved at some point he's going to be dragged into the conversation. You know, he, he can, you know, I think he's just being real and, uh, that's okay to me. Like, he, you know, it's better than him just try avoiding it at all costs all the time forever, because he's the most influential person in the world. If, if not now will be very soon. I think he's already. So, I mean, these issues are going to come up. Uh, he commented on, you know, the AR 15, uh, gun thing, you know, he's, on controversial things he's commenting and, you know, it's courageous of him, you know, because he knows he gets backlash from half the population, no matter which way he comments on this stuff. But, um, you know, he's a person, he has views and why not be able to express them in a mature way? And, uh, you know, that, that's my thought. Um, it, it may affect Tesla's brand or man by the extreme left people, for example, who are like, Oh, I can't believe he's going to vote Republican. I'm never going to buy a Tesla. So like, AOC said she's trying to trade in her Tesla now. So that 10% of very vocal Democrats, you know, may, uh, may not be customers of Tesla, but they don't need that. In my opinion, what are your thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, there's certainly the potential that you, you upset, um, a, a percentage of the, 
of the fringe, but you, by the same token, you're probably opening yourself up to, uh, you know, a broader population. I mean, I, I don't know the de details on this, but I would imagine that the current kind of population of, of Tesla drivers uh, lean somewhat heavily on the democratic side, or at least on the liberal side. Yeah. Um, so maybe you, you open that up a little bit with, you know, people who, you know, thought, Teslas were just for like, you know, tree hugging hippies or something like that on the right now. Yeah. Like, all right. Well, maybe the Elon guy's not so bad after all. And so, yeah. <laughs> like, but, yeah, but I think for the true. vast majority of people, they don't care about this and, and they're not paying attention to Elon's tweets. Um, yeah. you know, I'm sure some people hear some things anecdotally and think he's a little bit weird. But I think that the driving experience is probably what counts a lot more than any of this. So I, I think it's going to yeah. be a small impact, if any. Yeah. Next question from Ben Me Booba on Twitter. Do you have any information on the progress of the 4680 battery production rate? I personally do not. I know the limiting factor. Um, he's really up to date on a lot of this stuff. Uh, and Troy Testlight keeps close tabs on this stuff. Um, there's a number of like sort of battery experts that we follow, but I have not seen a recent update. I would encourage you to kind of locate some of those battery experts and uh, follow them. What do you have you heard anything, Matt? No, I haven't been following that as, as closely as, you know, some others. Um, so, yeah, I, did, I don't want to opine too much when I just frankly don't know. Yeah. Let's go to the next question. From ArtTwit on Twitter, could Tesla China sales for May still come as a negative surprise on top of the low production numbers? This is the, you know, multi-billion dollar market cap question, you know, is Tesla going to get cut down by the market, um, you know, in a, in a week or so, I guess when the numbers come out, uh, and, you know, for China, probably June 10th or something around that, you know, and also for the Q2 deliveries, P&D report on July 2nd or July 3rd that comes out, you know, is Tesla, is the market, you know, are they already anticipating all of this or not, you know? So maybe we'll get a preview of what happens on uh, July 2nd or 3rd. Maybe we'll get a preview you know, small to a much smaller extent when the, the May numbers come in in a couple of weeks. What, you have any thoughts, Matt? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think given how significant the drop has been from, you know, 1100 or whatever it was, I think it was 1077, somewhere in that neighborhood, right after the, you know, April 20th earnings report to, you know, 630 or wherever it got to last week. Um, I don't think that was all macro driven. I don't think that was all, um, you know, Elon Twitter driven, drama driven, as, as a lot of commentators have said. Uh, I think a, a good chunk of that is kind of Q2 worries that uh, analysts are, are baking in and, and the market is, is digesting. So I, I know a lot of us have a tendency to think that, you know, we're so much more on top of this and the market doesn't realize just how bad Q2 is. Uh, but I would say that market's not entirely inefficient. And, and I think the, the, price drop that we we saw was at least partially a reflection of um uncertainty around around you know shanghai production in general so could it could it come in as a negative surprise yes but i, I don't i my my sense is it was baked in mm -hmm. from clips of improvement on youtube if average sale prices stay the same and full self-driving is near perfect and there is a 90 percent take rate why would a 45 percent gross margin not be possible assuming more efficient factories, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I just, I think Matt, wh what do you think? I think 45% gross margins is possible. What do you, what do you think, Matt? It, it is. Um, it sounds crazy. I mean, I was, uh, 
listening back to Dave Lee conversation I, I had with him earlier this year about the, like, the crazy margin potential of all this stuff, especially if full self-driving takes off. Um, the, the one maybe caveat I would throw in there is to the extent that it's subscription based full self-driving, it may take longer because, you know, the, if you were just selling $12,000 packages and they're fully recognizable, which they're not right now. So keep that in mind also. Yeah. Um, but you know, if it was near perfect, I, my sense is it, a bigger chunk of the sales would probably be subscription based. And so then over time, as you accumulate a lot more of those subscriptions, it'll, it'll probably, um, you know, take off and you could have sustained 45% plus gross margins. Um, but uh, I'm not sure exactly how that'll shake out between FSD sales and FSD subscriptions. Next question from Michael on the YouTube comments. Once full self-driving is proven, will governments promote its adoption similar to how they offered EV tax credits? That's a great question. I think in the U.S. it'll it'll be a state by state thing. First, you'll see a couple of municipalities maybe promote it um, to kind of attract industry for this new technology to their kind of city or municipal region, um, and then other municipalities will catch on. Do so. so. Miami might be one of the first ones, for example, or you know Arizona, uh, Scottsdale, or, or that other place in Arizona that everyone's full self driving. And then I think you might see certain states come on board with some kind of endorsement and i think internationally you might see a faster even though tesla's full self-driving is is more fitted for u.s roads at the moment i think when it gets to a certain point in the s-curve where it's like really good in the u.s roads it'll be very quick to kind of adopt it to or fit it for roads in europe or even china or other places i think the technology will be there to like speed up the fitting process where it's not a two or three or four year process, more like a six month or three or six month process. And then some of those other countries may even be more aggressive uh, about trying to encourage the adoption of full self-driving. That's my own prediction. Matt, you have any thoughts on this? No, I I think it could go that way. I mean, you know, seatbelts were mandatory eventually, but it took a lot of time. Um, yeah. Like if you one other way to look at it is like the cafe standard, which is the the fuel economy standards. That's kind of like a a top down approach. So they they could just require a certain percentage of each manufacturer's vehicles to be you know full like autonomous or something like that. So you could see something like that. But I think the potential. I think Tesla is going to want to do the right thing in terms of like getting it into other OEMs' hands. So there's possibility they could even license it at a probably lower than optimal price for Tesla just because it's like the right thing to do from a safety standpoint. So, um, you know, I I don't know exactly how it'll pan out. I think there's going to be some pockets of government that are going to be pushing against it, even when it (laughs) like becomes clear that it's safer just because the government doesn't seem to make any sense these days. Yeah. Um, but I, I think ultimately it's going to be hard to argue with the stats. And so it'll, it'll have some, in the long run, it'll have some sort of regulatory push. I just don't know how it's going to pan out. From Arthur Blake on YouTube question, what is the chance that Q2 actually surprises? Everyone thinks it's going to be a big letdown, but Tesla has surprised in similar situations in the past. I mean, I think there could be a bit of a surprise, like instead of people are expecting maybe 250 or 255 come, you know, the P and the production delivery print, maybe they show 265 or 270 somehow, you know, that's the highest I, see, I think the upside would be is, you know, 10 or 15,000 more than what Troy test like is, is suggesting, for example, and others. So 
you know, I don't think a surprise could be more than last quarter's uh, production, but you know, we'll see how June goes. I mean, June is a full month. So a whole third of the quarter we have left to go, you know, Fremont still is on all four cylinders, uh, you know, slight um, improvement to last quarter, let's say production wise, but then Shanghai is getting back to full steam for June you know, maybe Shanghai is even outdoing what it did the third quarter of last, you know, maybe what it did in March, you know, possibly. So Giga Berlin and Texas, I really, you know, I think we'll know quickly if, if they start ramping up, but I haven't heard, I haven't seen any evidence to show that Shanghai or Berlin or anything, you know, are, are very meaningful yet in production. They're still kind of getting their lines situated, I feel like, and supplies are a bit constrained over there, maybe. What do you think, Matt? Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. Like, I'd be... I'd be totally shocked if they did 270. Um, now, I was totally shocked that they, they did as many in Q1 as they did. So there's yeah. potential that there's just some crazy wizardry going on. But um, I, I'm not at all expecting that. Uh, where I do think there's at least the potential to surprise a little bit is is in the financials. Um, mm. And again, I'm not expecting that. Like I, I keep going through and, and adjusting my my model. And I'm, I'm kind of getting somewhere in like the 210 to 220, you know, earnings per share range. Uh, so significantly down from, from where we were last year or sorry, last quarter, but, um, still not a terrible, uh, situation, all things considered. Um, you know, but I think we're at a point where it's, it's hard to really model it out at this point. You've got your highest margin factory is down, um, for a decent amount of time. You've got price increases rolling through. You've got two new factories that are highly underutilized, which are presumably going to be a drag on gross margins. Um, but then you've got weird things like the services, you know, credit from the leases that are coming back. So trying to, to like get a, a read on how this is this um, Q2 is going to print is, is probably one of the tri trickiest exercises we've had so far is um, in, in trying to, to peg it down. So. I, my sense is, you know, there there won't be a beat. I mean, Wall Street's pretty close to what I'm estimating right now. So my my confidence level is low that there would be a beat. But you wouldn't have to change too many variables um, for the numbers to look pretty good. And then there's always the potential that they could like recognize a portion of the um, deferred FSD revenue, for example, or maybe full self driving take rate really is increasing now that. Um, um, the the functionality is, is so good. I mean, there's a hundred thousand people using it now. That's that's kind of nuts. Um, so I think they they have a strong case to be made to their accountants that they could start to recognize some of that uh, some of that revenue for a hundred thousand vehicles. I mean, you think about a hundred thousand vehicles that you've actually delivered the functionality to now, um, and if they, if they have an average carrying value of their full self driving of like you know five thousand dollars or so, then you know that's what five hundred million dollars of deferred revenue that they could recognize. Um, now analysts might back that out, but the, the point is, I think it's there's a lot of weird levers that are that could be pulled this quarter that I'm just not sure how they're going to shake out. Next question from Liasio on YouTube: With oil and gas going up again in May and June, I fear CPI delayed data will go up again in the next few months, which may cause another drop in the market. Thoughts? Um, well, I think uh, there is some fears of that, but I think housing prices kind of coming down and used cars prices coming down. I think there's some offsets uh, going on, even though oil and gas are going up right now. Um, so you have to kind of look at the entire, you know, universe of the 
products used to calculate the uh, the CPI, I guess. I'm not an expert on the CPI, but from a conceptual standpoint, it seems like there's, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of mismatches and everything's not correlated in exact time with what's going up at the right time. So I don't think that, uh, I'm not as worried as I think some people are getting about oil and gas going up right now uh, in May and June. But Matt, I, you might have a different take. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I tweeted a chart right before this, actually, you know, looking at the the rise, like the drivers of inflation. And so like how, how much have prices increased, you know, year over year. And far and away, the biggest increases were um, energy pricing. So oil, gasoline, uh, natural gas, and then electricity. I mean, th those like fuel oil on its own increased 80% year over year. Gasoline's up 44%. Uh, electricity is up 11%, like, you know, food and apparel and all the other things that, that make up inflation have, have been much lower. Um, and in fact, like apparel and shelter medical services were only up, you know, four and 5% year over year in April. So when you look at core CPI, which is, you know, kind of excluding um, uh, energy, and I think there's, there's one other thing that's excluded from there, uh, food and energy, uh, core CPI is actually a lot more modest. Um, and, and I think the point that Kathy Wood brought up that we spoke about last week of inventories in those kind of um, categories that make up core CPI have really been ballooning. So there's, there's, I think, strong potential, at least I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I think there's strong potential for deflationary pressure on all the areas of the economy, maybe not all the areas, but on many areas of the economy that are not commodities driven, especially like energy price driven. Um, so I think there could be a break in that at some point. I don't think there's any let up in oil and gas, but I think the market, like energy prices are apparent every day. Like, so I think it's, just, it, the market's not gonna miss what's happening with the price of oil or like what's going on with Henry Hub prices for natural gas, which are the highest they've ever been, in, at least in the last 15 years, like $8 in MMBTU, crazy high. Um, so the market's clearly looking at that and saying uh, that's that's not good for inflation. But I think the other areas are, are probably harder to predict, you know, like what's going on with um, like apparel and groceries and all those other things. So a um, bit of a bit of a rambling answer, but I think there's there's potential that uh, at least core CPI may not be as bad as some people might be expecting. All right. Next question from NasTube on YouTube. What is the probability of Rocket Lab getting delisted if the stock continues to fall? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think the stock uh, has been falling along with all the growth stocks and te and SPACs, especially. Last I checked, Rocket Lab's market cap was around two point three billion valuation, just trading under five dollars. But you have a lot of other space SPACs trading well under five dollars for a long time. I think some are trading like one or two dollars, and they have like in the hundreds of millions of market cap, you know, those types of stocks would likely get delisted well before Rocket Lab ever was required to be delisted. I don't even, you know, they could always do a reverse split if it's a share price, nominal share price thing on NASDAQ has to be over $5 a share. But I think that only counts if the market cap is under a certain amount, like 200 million or something like that for an extended period of time. I can't remember the exact rule. I used to when I took like the Series 7 many years ago, but maybe that rule's changed. But um, I'm not worried about Rocket Lab getting delisted. No, um, that sounds like, uh, you know, if that's someone's writing about that, um, to me, that sounds like FUD, uh, someone who's short the stock, trying to get other people to jump ship or something. Um, yeah. Anyway, 
Next question. Yeah. Could be wrong. Do your own investment research, of course. We have a disclaimer at the beginning. Uh, from Ben Sizz on YouTube. On Goodsell, general investor, if you never sell Tesla, how do you plan to get a return on investment? Never is a long word. I mean, never. I, I would never. I would not say we, you would never sell Tesla. Uh, I mean, we're talking like 10, 20 years from now or something. You know, Tesla could be 100 times worth what it is now, potentially. You never know. I mean, um, so at some point you could sell Tesla. You could also sell covered calls at some point or Tesla will eventually pay a dividend, in my opinion. I mean, you could start buying back shares as well. But I think at some point down the road, they would pay a dividend just like Apple pays a dividend now. So people who've held Apple for a long time. Even if they're still holding Apple, they're getting a return on investment through a dividend or same with, you know, a lot of companies that have been around for a long time. Any thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I mean, since they mentioned good soil, I would just say, you know, investors, you know, can you know, ask for a, a distribution, you know, at, at any point so they can liquidate their share. And then, you know, we'll, yeah, you, like we it's not necessarily our our. Um, you know, mo to to dictate when investors get their money back. I mean, so there's there's certainly that. You know, that we we uh, it's not like we're a venture capital fund, for example, where we have illiquid investments, and you only get your money back when we say that you know we're, we're selling. That's you know, true. The, yeah. The price. So, um, you know, there's there's that form of liquidity, which I think you know alleviates that particular concern that that Ben laid out. But um, you know, generally speaking, though, I agree with you, though, Emmett, that um, I think. In the long run, I think dividends are probably going to be the biggest source of kind of like return on capital for Tesla. But yeah. then of course, you know, you could sell. Yeah, yeah. I read that question wrong, but you're absolutely right. I, I was thinking like if you're just an investor in Tesla long term and you're following what we're doing or whatever, and you know, how do you get a return on investment? So anyway, good, good. Answer. Let's let's do one more question, and I have one comment I want to talk about the Jackson Palmer thing I forgot to talk about that came up. So one oh, more yeah. question. Yeah, one more question is. Uh, with the recent market sell-off and potential further selling, any new names that you guys are considering for the fund? I mean, we're always surveying, looking for other names. There's other names on our radar. Um, you know, currently we're in the, you know, heavily in the four stocks. We talk about Tesla, uh, Roblox, Lemonade, and Rocket Lab, and we're still big believers in those four names. Our highest conviction in Tesla by far. Um, and they've all been hit hard and there's lots of great companies out there. You know, we just have limited bandwidth to research all of them. And if we can't personally understand, like so many people have sent us Palantir over the years or Snowflake or whatever. And I just, you know, I've looked into them a little bit, but I just personally can't spend enough time to really feel like I have a good understanding other than other people who I think are smart buying that, those stocks. And those are, that's a trap for me. If there's other people who I think are smart are buying a stock and talking about how great it is, but I personally can't understand it myself that's like a trap for me not to invest in it. You know, I might be missing out on a winner, but also I've lost a lot more than I've gained over the decades of investing by trying to follow other people. So we just haven't had enough time yeah. to study a bunch of other stocks, but we have a lot on our list. What, any, anything you want to add to that, Matt? Yeah, well, I completely agree with, with everything you just said. I mean, the only thing I guess I would, I would add is um, we, we do believe that there is some value in concentration. So we're much more concentrated as a fund. Uh, and I suspect many of our followers are as well, just from the commentary I've seen on Twitter of how, yeah. how concentrated people are in Tesla in general. But uh, for uh, like a, a hedge fund or for any type of fund, really, we are very highly concentrated. I mean, to really just have four core names is, is pretty much um, unheard of. Um, so, but I think 
for this particular moment where we are in history, uh, and, and, Frank, and with the caveat that, you know, it's with the appropriate risk appetite. And, you know, we, we are very kind of upfront with our investors about uh, the risk level of the fund itself and, and our use of derivatives and everything like that. But what I would say is, um, you know, with the technological breakthroughs that and the way that markets are changing this decade, um, in, in my mind, not investment advice, but um, I think there's going to be outsized gains in a very hand, very small handful of, of um, stocks and of names that can kind of take advantage of the technological disruption that I think is coming. Um, and so I, I'd rather stay concentrated in a smaller group of names that I can, you know, follow the, the developments very closely. Um, and then if things change or, you know, if other um, companies, like we were saying earlier, have a better risk reward trade-off, and of course, we'll you know switch. But um, I, I think if you're trying to have a, a, a group of like 20 names that you're trading um, or managing that portfolio, I don't think it's possible unless you've got like a huge staff of people researching it. I don't think it's possible that you can really understand what's going on in depth with each one of those companies. So I personally just feel like I'm being a better steward of, of you know the resources that we have under our watch when you know it's a smaller group of companies that I know inside and out. Yeah. And speaking of, uh, of that concept of not being possible to know every, you know, there's the concept of grifters and this guy, Jackson Palmer, who's, you know, I guess a co-founder of Dogecoin, you know, he's calling Elon Musk a, a grift. He says, quote, he's a grift of Elon Musk. He says, after I gave him the script, I was not a fan of him. He's a grifter. He sells a vision in hopes that he can one day deliver what he's promising, but he doesn't know that. He's really just, he's just really good at pretending he knows. That's very evident with the Tesla full self-driving promise. That's the quote of, I, 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 that stood out to me from this guy in this interview. So uh, apparently Jackson Palmer is a heavy skeptic of Elon. Uh, maybe he's a little bitter because he's probably been shorting Elon, shorting Tesla <laughs> or something. I don't know. But he, he tells a story of, you know, and Elon and him, has gone back saying that his code is not good. Why doesn't he just open source his code if it's so good? So Elon's trying to bring light to the problem. So Jackson's giving, Jackson Palmer is giving his side of the story in this exclusive interview where it doesn't even allow, the, inter the interview doesn't even ask Elon for his, his feedback. And instead, Elon takes to Twitter and says, well, if it's so good, your code, why don't you open source it here on Twitter for everyone to see, just to decide, you know? And so I, I love that Elon is trying to just shine light on this stuff and open things up. Like people complain, claim so many terrible and nefarious things about Elon, but Elon is all for transparency and just showing, you know, shedding light on, on this stuff so that people can have enough information to decide for themselves who's right and who's wrong. It would be great if Jackson Palmer, you know, maybe he will let up his, you know, show his whole code on, uh, Twitter for everyone to see if it's actually some brilliant code for getting those scam bots or not. You know, I, you know, that's, I don't know. It's just frustrating when you see the media pick up on the few people that, you know, have it in for Elon and, uh, and try to sensationalize that. Um, it's frustrating, but you know, Twitter, I think is, is a great, uh, avenue to kind of bring this stuff out quicker so that Elon can question to the whole media, like have this guy put out his code if he's so confident that it's some special code that, you know, I couldn't understand, you know? So what do you think, Matt? Yeah. I mean, so I, I hadn't listened to the interview uh, that, that Jackson Palmer had, but yeah, I mean, it's like you, you can 
like scream about Tesla or Elon and you're immediately going to get picked up on in like a broader, it's, it's like a lightning rod. And so if you want attention, you just scream Elon Musk or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it, does he actually believe what he's saying or is he just trying to get attention? I, I don't know. But um, yeah, yeah I, like if you like if you truly do have something that's that amazing, you know, it's really easy to get the credit that you think you deserve, you know, right? Just share it. And people say, oh, my gosh, Jackson Palmer really is amazing. Like, thank yeah. God for him solving crypto bots. Like, yeah. So, like, you know, put up or shut up, I think, is ultimately like the what, what you need to do. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and just so you know, this this crikey uh, Australian website, I, I don't know anything about it. My guess is they're, you know, very uh, left leaning and upset with Elon for, you know, saying he's going to vote Republican, even though they're based in Australia. And the way this interview is not an audible interview. OK, so these interviews, just so you know, um, it shows like Crikey is asking this question. So Crikey, the company is asking this question and Jackson Palmer has a long winded answer. This is not likely an audible interview that they wrote down the transcript for. Otherwise, they'd publish the audio. More than likely, Crikey or maybe Jackson Palmer paid Crikey to say, hey, I want to put out an article of an, in an interview format. And then, or maybe Crikey came to Jackson Palmer and said, hey, would you do an interview format article for us? And, and then Jackson Palmer, what he can do is he can write down the questions he wants to answer himself and make it look like Crikey's asking him these specific questions. And then he can write down his long-winded answer the way he wants it to be written. Yeah. So that's that's what happens in a lot of these written interviews. I was part of one once a long time ago. If you Google Emmett Peppers and shedding light for order on, on payment for order flow, that I did an interview like that once. And that's how a lot of these interviews on the on the web are done. You know, when you're trying to market your position, you know, I was trying to explain payment for order flow. This was years ago on a, on Wes Gray's website, actually, in an interview oh, really? format. And he just suggested like, hey, why don't you write down the questions and the answers and we'll publish it. We'll look it over and make sure we, we agree and publish it. So I'm a, I'm guessing that's what happened here. It's just this guy, Jackson Palmer, basically writing an op-ed, but um, he's writing it in an interview format. So it looks like someone's asking him the question. So it seems more credible that it's a trick. It's like a mind game when you put it out that way, in my opinion. So it doesn't seem very um, authentic. I'm very suspicious of this person. Yeah, I mean, my sense is he's got his 15 minutes of fame, and yeah, like I hadn't yeah. heard of him before today. Yeah, <laughs> and I have a feeling like <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> a few months from now, if you're like, oh, Jackson Palmer, what are, you, what are your updated thoughts on him? Like, who are yeah. you talking about, Emmett? I don't yeah, know yeah. that guy. Yeah, well, you know what? Maybe AOC or Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are like, oh, here's a friend in the tech community we can reach out to to, you know, help out with stuff or whatever. Who knows? I don't know. He's probably gonna. He's just allied with you know the fringe, you know, on, on the left that probably is, you know, he's talking about Republic, you know, it, if you read the interview, it's clear he's an interesting character. Anyway, uh, that's it for this week, guys. Uh, we'll be on next week, same time, same place. And uh, Matt, have a great, great day and week. And uh, let's hope Tesla, you know, I guess it's everything's staying flat today. Tesla's uh, about flat, you know, uh, 762. Um so we'll see what happens. Is the market going to be trading sideways, up or down? I guess anyone's guess. <laughs> so it's the people that 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 they'd be very wary of the people who are even credentialed macroeconomists, economics, who kind of show some kind of like uh, confidence with where they think the market's going. Just be very skeptical. Anyway, um, we'll leave it at that. All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks, everyone.